At one point in the mid-1950s, there were literally four, that's one, two, three, four immigrants in detention in the entire United States of America. This is people coming from other countries trying to make it to the U.S. to start a new life. And maybe the chance to have a shot at the American dream. And just to repeat it, in 1955, there were four people being held in immigration detention. But when we look at where we are today, things have shifted in a really remarkable way. In 2019, there was an average of more than 50,000 immigrants in detention facilities every single day. So, what happened here? How did holding almost no immigrants in detention turn into holding tens of thousands of immigrants in detention every single day? Over the next six episodes, we're gonna take a deep and critical look into what led to the current system of immigration detention that we have today. What anxieties drove the creation of a national network of detention centers? What were the inflection points? And what did the Cold War have to do with it? As it turns out, the most important chapters of this history did not happen at the U.S.-Mexico border, a place that's now become synonymous with debates about immigration policy. More than anywhere else, the immigration and detention system that we have in this country today was shaped by events that happened in the state of Florida in the 1970s and the 1980s and specifically events that played out in Miami with the arrival of a new wave of Haitian and Cuban immigrants. From WLRN News in Miami, this is Detention by Design. I'm Danny Rivero. Funding for Detention by Design was made possible by the Shepherd Broad Foundation in honor of its founder, whose immigration story included detention at age 14, but also the warm embrace of the Miami community. The story of how Florida helped shape our immigration system goes back to 1957, when Francois Papadoc Duvalier was elected to office as president of Haiti on a platform of black nationalism. Gypsy Metalus was born in Haiti a few years after Duvalier was elected, and she came to the U.S. when she was 12. Today, she's the executive director of Haitian Neighborhood Center Sant La, a community organization in Little Haiti in Miami. And she says back in 1957, Haiti was at a crossroads. In Haiti, there's this tension between the overwhelming majority of dark-skinned people, black people, and the very, very small minority of lighter skin or mulatto or individuals of Middle Eastern origin, right, who have really d done very well, financially very well in Haiti, at the expense of most of the darker-skinned individuals. When Francois Duvalier ran for president in 1957, his main platform was rectifying this, the empowerment of Haitians with darker skin, people like himself. When that agenda came about, I think people sort of bought into it because it made sense. It was an opportunity to finally have darker-skinned Black people share in the power structure, share in the economic success stories, be part of civil society, be part of the political class, be part of the technocrats, be part of the professionals who, who had state jobs, so on and so forth. But then the project quickly deteriorated. 
As president of Haiti, Francois Duvalier didn't start off as a dictator. Over time, he consolidated his power and declared himself president for life. Here he is speaking to Miami TV station WTVJ in 1966. I'm the most popular man in Haiti. I'm a leader. And I'm here to carry my duty carefully. No one can do that. Early in his presidency, he established himself as an ally with the United States against communism, which had just found a foothold in Cuba next door. But Duvalier played a double game in Haiti. Within a few years, he established a totalitarian regime. He controlled everything. You disagreed with him, you were silenced in, in, in various ways, in various brutal ways, right? Uh, people were killed, people were maimed. Uh, his favorite tool was exile. You disagreed with him, you had, your family was sent off into exile. So from exile came murders, disappearances, uh, to the point where now he had to have an army of folks helping to maintain the order he needed to secure his power. This thirst for power led to the creation of a feared group in Haiti called the Tonton Makuts. Literally, the name means Uncle Gunny Sack in Haitian Creole, and it carries dark connotations based on a folk story told to little children in the countryside. And Uncle Gunny Sack, Tonton Makut, would come and stick little children in a bag and then carry them far away from their homes and basically terrorize them. The Tontomakuts was, there were a paramilitary force created by Duvalier, so these were his henchmen. So yes, there was an army, an official army, but this group of loyalists did his bidding, right? So he had an enemy somewhere. It was their job to find out who the enemy was, who the enemy spoke with, um, and where the, you know, who the enemy's friends were, such that they could all be disappeared, and disappear here, understand, killed, exiled, uh, tortured, thrown in jail. As a child in her village, Marlene Bastien grew up seeing the Tonton Makuts in action. Bastien is the executive director of the Haitian American Advocacy Group, Family Action Network Movement, or FAN. When I was growing up under the dictatorship, it was, it was, uh, very sur surreal at times because I can still see in my mind's eyes um, people like walking in my village when I would go on vacation with uh, someone's head on a stick. I can still see that in my mind's eye. I can still see in my mind's eye uh, people being dragged to the street and be being submitted to the jack. The jack is a very brutal uh, tactic to torture people where they tie your hands, they tie your legs, and they put, they put your, 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 your hands in, in, into your legs, and then they tie it. It's like, and you become like a ball, and they would beat you on one side of your buttocks until it's like all mashed up, and then they would kick you because you're like a ball, you roll like this, and then they would beat you again. So as a child, I grew up watching this. Bastien's family was pretty well-to-do in her village. And sometimes that gave her father a little bit of leverage with the Tonton Makuts. Her father studied medicine, 
and ran a clinic out of his home. So a lot of people in the village came to know him as Doc. Sometimes he would arrest someone for, you know, any reason, and then someone would run, run, run. I, I would see, as a little girl, I would see, oh, someone running to my house, running. Oh, Doc, 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 come, 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 vini, 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 vini. Because they just arrested someone, and then they were going to, uh, you know, submit them to the jack. And then sometimes they would call my, my dad, uh, if my dad is not around, they'd call my mom to go. And because they were respected citizens, they would sometimes, if they talk, if he, they talk to the Totomakuts, they would not, you know, uh, kill or the person. Believe it or not, I can still hear the cry sometimes in my, uh, you know, of people. After they beat them so much, they would not be able to walk, right? They put them in this barrel, and then they would you would hear, because the, the road is not paved, you would hear the, the bow going, and then you, I can still hear this cries, this horrific cries of, of suffering. And then I would, be, I would be so scared as a, little, as a young girl in my bed, because we live, when we're, not, when we're in school, our, our house was in the same street as the cemetery. And at night, I'm a very, I've always been a very light sleeper. Um, sorry. I've, I've always been a very light sleeper. And then I would, I would hear the cries. It's not even, you would not even be human, you know. Like, and they would bury the person. The person is not dead yet, and they would bury the person like that. So sometimes I wonder why I, how come I can um, be so free and not be more traumatized about that. During Marlene Bastien's childhood in the countryside in Haiti, a lot of aspects of communal, traditional life were still intact. And Bastien remembers her mom cooking huge pots of rice and beans to share with the village during a pretty important time of year. When you have to work in your farm, your neighbors come together and then help you uh, plant uh, rice or, 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 or pick, man- pick up mangoes or something like that. And when it's their turn, you go to their farms to help them, to help them. That's they call, they call that a combit. And while they're doing it, the people, they were bending and picking the rice and singing, and then they would start to sing the song, and then the group would answer. It was like a very communal, important event. While Francois Duvalier aligned himself with the United States against communism in the Caribbean, he started to implement industrial policies that would later fundamentally change this rural life in Haiti. We want to have private investors, North American investors, come here and try to to help the Haitian people, the Haitian government, Duvalier got what he wanted, and it would eventually contribute to tens of thousands of people leaving the country for the U.S. 
As the antithesis of the communist revolution that just happened in Cuba, the changes that started to take place in Haiti were based on the principles of open markets, free trade, and capitalism. Duvalier's son would later expand on this and open the economy with factory jobs. These changes moved in lockstep with what was happening inside the United States. It was really a sea change happening at that point in the U.S. economy. Kim Ives is an American journalist who spent years reporting on Haiti in the 1970s and 80s. And today, he edits the Haitian newspaper Haiti Liberté, based in New York City. The old industrial nation we had birthed uh, in the early 20th century, sort of reaching its crescendo in the 50s and 60s, was uh, disintegrating. Uh, and there was a flight of factories to cheap labor havens around the world. And one of the principal ones of those was Haiti. I was a typical American middle-class kid growing up in the suburbs of New York. And, um, but that was a time of great social ferment in this country. The Vietnam War was raging, uh, wars in European colonies in Africa, uh, Portuguese, uh, Guinea-Bissau, Mozambique, Angola, uh, in South Africa, in what was then Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe. And my mother came to know the Haitians. Many of them were refugees from the Duvalier dictatorship and based themselves in New York. Many times professionals, doctors, lawyers, etc. But they were all anti-Duvaliarist and wanted democracy. People who knew that if they spoke out against Duvalier back home in Haiti, they might be thrown in prison or killed. After Ives graduated from high school in Connecticut, he was recruited by a pro-democracy group to go to Haiti and make a film about what was happening in the country. So he went down there, looking not that much different from the new factory owners. I was able to do it because as a white American, I had a lot more margin of maneuver. Uh, in the country, and uh, we worked with sort of a clandestine network of uh, anti-devaluerists. That film is called Bitter Cane, and in it, we hear from some Americans who lost their jobs when their factories moved to Port-au-Prince, the Haitian capital. Like this group that worked at a Kenwood clothing company factory in West Virginia. Why not ship it down there? It's cheaper to ship it down there for them to work for $2 a day than to pay us $30 a day. I had no job. My job was number two. Why, why did they say they'd laid you off? I had no work. No work for me. Alongside the new factories moving to Haiti in the 60s and 70s, a swell of people were moving from the countryside, where most people lived, into the city. And this brought about a massive change inside of Haiti because Port-au-Prince was actually not that big of a city before the foreign factories came. But then, its population exploded in a city that was just not ready. Again, Gypsy Metalus, the executive director of Haitian Neighborhood Center Saint La in Miami. You've got Haitians, you know, who, Haitians who abandon their agricultural lands, who abandon their livelihoods in, in rural areas to just come to the city at the invitation, at the behest of, of Papa Doc Duvalier. And they were left 
They were left to swell the ranks of the population in Port-au-Prince. They were left without homes, without support systems. In the film Bitter Cane, we hear directly from some of the Haitian workers in these factories that were set up by American companies. Our problem is that when it rains, the house floods. I do my best to patch the ceiling and to keep the children dry, but they get all wet anyway. For 720 bras, I get paid $2.64. The film also includes American businessmen who came to Port-au-Prince as manufacturing operations moved to Haiti. And they were happy to be making money. But some of them also acknowledged that the factories were changing Haiti in a way that was creating real problems. We have seen a steady growth in over 240 factories. Now, these are American and foreign-owned factories on the island, employing over 60,000 people. Uh, the electronics industry, of course, is very large here. Nearly all of the baseballs uh, used in the United States by the professional teams are manufactured in Haiti and have been for a number of years. More and more people are coming into Port-au-Prince looking for jobs, uh, leaving whatever they were doing in, in terms of farming on their own land. And consequently, what's happening now in Port-au-Prince is a huge slum area, and it's becoming a real problem this growth, this expansion of this, this population surge, if you will, in Port-au-Prince. You know, this is the context for the rise of this hell, this atmosphere of hell in Haiti, a hell financially, a hell politically, socially. And for anyone who tried to organize politically to address the deteriorating situation, or for anyone who tried to organize a workers' union to get better pay, they face threats of violence from the Tonton Makuts. A lot of Haitians who had the resources to fly to the U.S. fled. People didn't trust one another. Family members could didn't trust one another because to speak out against Duvalier to your brother, to your cousin, to your uncle might have meant that, you know, you were denounced by someone and you and everybody else would be round up and thrown in jail or exiled or killed. Right? And so that atmosphere of tension was very real. Many members of my family left Haiti around that time when the signs were written on the walls that this was becoming increasingly a brutal atmosphere. And so those who could get out did. The first wave of Haitians in the late 1960s and early 70s mostly went to the Northeast, with most settling in New York. A lot of what we've been talking about so far takes us through the 1960s into the early 70s. But in 1971, self-proclaimed president for life Francois Duvalier dies and leaves all the power in the hands of his son, Jean-Claude Duvalier. He was 19 years old, and he was preordained president for life. From then on, they become known as Papa Doc and Baby Doc. Baby Doc kept most of his father's policies and brutal practices in place. And over the years, he would also come to be known for his extravagance, and for being completely out of touch with the realities of the Haitian people. Because unlike his father, Baby Doc grew up sheltered in the palace bubble, surrounded by yes-men. 
And by the time Baby Doc comes to power, the economic and political conditions were becoming completely unbearable for huge numbers of Haitians. And since a lot of the wealthier Haitians had already left, it's mostly the working classes and poor people in the countryside who are left in Haiti. And as people do, those Haitians who couldn't leave on planes tried to problem solve and figure out a way to make things better for themselves. Haitians sort of um, coined the phrase for this act of this choice to survive, right? And it was, you know, I'd rather, I rather get a shark visa. A shark visa, as in sharks swimming in the ocean. And a shark visa means what? You're going to take on, you're going to take to the high seas. You're going to come on some rickety boat and you hope that it will take you to the United States, to a neighboring island, Bahamas, Turks and Caicos, and the, you know, the, the other islands in the Caribbean. Because to just risk your life through a shark visa is better than to just stay there and, and be at the mercy of all of these forces. You've got a climate where the state's repressive, lack of economic opportunities, the brutality, the conditions were just... <laughs> the conditions sort of conspired to have the mass exodus that we would know in Miami as the boat people crisis. What's widely considered the first Haitian boat to arrive in Florida was in December of 1972, 50 years ago. And that was when a small boat landed on Pompano Beach in Broward County. A total of 65 Haitians were on board. And the ship's captain told the Associated Press that he was a political prisoner and that his father bribed prison officials to get him and others released. This moment in 1972 marks the beginning of a new era for both Haitian and American history. Abel Jean-Simon Zephyr says he knew some of those first Haitians who left with a shark visa. He was a teenager at the time, born and raised in Port-au-Prince. Two of the guys that used to live in my area, and they left early. Uh, they were in jail. One of them was shot by a military in Haiti. To understand the environment, it's not like here. If you vote for Democrat, you keep your job, you still live in the same neighborhood. Or you vote Republican, I'm still your friend, I'm still in the same job you are. And uh, if you oppose the government, you automatically become an enemy of the government. You're on the blacklist. Most importantly, you can have a job, but you cannot talk. Uh, politics is none of your business, so it's a president for life. There was a brief moment of hope when Baby Doc came to power, that maybe he wouldn't be as bad as his father. But with the wave of repression that marked 1971 and 1972, that hope quickly turned into hopelessness. And that was a bad sign for me and others. And although I was very young, I decided a bunch of us to leave. So in August of 1973, Zephyr and 61 of his fellow Haitians boarded a boat in Port-au-Prince and took to the Caribbean Sea. He was 16 years old. Zephyr says it was a bittersweet feeling boarding that boat. It was an act of desperation, yes. But on the other side, there was promise. 
is a combined uh, feeling. You left the country because you feel you, you're going to another place where you can be safe and also find opportunity. Okay? And, and, but you have the opportunity to educate yourself, but you, at the same time, you can rebuild your own country. That was the dream. Next time on Detention by Design. The U.S. is caught flat-footed by the exodus in the Caribbean. And immigration detention as we know it today begins. We had no procedures. We had no regulations. We had nothing. That day when they bought food, we said, we're not eating. We've been waiting for so long. And we asked for political asylum. You have to make up your mind. Archival clips in this episode came from WTVJ. Detention by Design is a production of WLRN News. It's edited by Alicia Zuckerman. We also had editing help from Tracy Egbas and Tim Paget. Thanks, too, to the rest of the WLRN Newsroom. Fact-checking by Amy Tardif. Jacqueline Charles is our consultant. Engineering and sound design by Merritt Jacob. Detention by Design is reported and produced by me, Danny Rivero. 